do enjoy. You can say thank you to Pastor Daryl. He did a great job. <laughs> did you enjoy the weather today? Finally. Did you wonder if it was ever going to come? I wasn't sure we would ever go outside and eat again. But it's finally, it's finally here. It's going to be a beautiful weekend. It's good to see all of you uh, here this evening. Tomorrow, tomorrow morning, we celebrate in our 1130 service. I think this is maybe our fourth year, third or fourth year, to uh, host Biker Service, Biker Sunday. And uh, that's tomorrow at 1130, and so we're excited about that. Uh, and if you ride a motorcycle, you just thank God for weather like this today. One of the, one of the joys of riding a motorcycle. How many of you, how many of you ride a motorcycle? All right. Now, if you if you ride a scooter and you raise your hand, you just put that hand right back down. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, one of the joys, if you, I, I I love to ride my motorcycle. One of the joys of riding a motorcycle is is that every time every time you get on a motorcycle and you fire up the engine. There, there is a potential story in the making. And when, biker, when bikers get together, the primary topic of conversation usually is it's about motorcycle stories. You just, talk, you just talk about what happened on the last time you rode your motorcycle, whether it was riding through rain or hail or wind or whether you saw some spectacular scene out in the mountains or whatever it might be, whether it's about your bike breaking down. See, the great part about riding a motorcycle is even when it's horrible, it's a great story afterwards. And, and you just share it. You get together and you start talking about it. It really doesn't matter what happened because, because bikers are, are the people who realize that, that getting there is actually more fun than being there. And when we get there, we're, we're kind of sad because we want to be getting there still. And, and so everything makes a story. If you just, bikers will sit around and say, you know, last night I, I got on my motorcycle and I rode to the grocery store and I got milk. And it was awesome. It was just great. That's a story when you ride a motorcycle. And, and it's, not just for, it's not just for people who ride motorcycles, although I, I think they, they, they do a lot. I learned that a friend of mine here, uh, I learned the story behind uh, why he put a windshield on his motorcycle. He never had a windshield on his motorcycle. And the story behind why he got a windshield is because at about 60 miles an hour, a big old bumblebee smacked him right in the forehead and almost knocked him off his bike. And a bumblebee at 60 miles an hour feels more like a golf ball. And so he got a windshield. That was his story. I read a story recently, a true story, about a couple from Australia who in 13 years, over 13 years, this couple rode their 1994 Harley Davidson electric glide. Everybody say, Over 13 years, they rode that motorcycle in 192 different countries in the world. Every internationally recognized country in 13 years, they rode their motorcycle. In a span of 15 years, they put 326,220 miles on that 1994 Harley-Davidson. Everybody likes a story. It doesn't matter if, if it's the little kids if, if you're a parent uh, and, and have kids that age, or maybe, maybe your kids, uh, you can remember when they were that age, 
They love bedtime stories, I think largely because they just want to stay up later. You know, they tell you what a great storyteller you are. You're really not. They just want to stay up later. And so tell me another story. I need a drink. I need to go to the bathroom. Whether it's the preschoolers that you're telling the story to, or whether it's teenagers who go camping and tell ghost stories by the fire, or whether it's adults who tune in to Garrison Keeler, there's just something about the power of stories. What do you typically do when you get together with old friends you haven't seen in a while? You start telling stories. I have a, a brother who lives in Denver, and I have a brother who lives in Georgia. And, and we're not all able to get together very often. But when we do, with my parents, when my family gets together, we immediately, almost on cue, just begin to tell stories. Old stories about when we were growing up. Stories about getting into trouble. Mostly my brother's. That got in trouble. We tell those stories. And we, we, tell, we tell stories about things we got away with that my parents had no idea. And, and they have not so much enjoyed our stories. But we tell those kinds of stories. We tell stories about when we got hurt. For some reason, those are popular stories. One of the stories that we tell almost every time we're together is one year for Christmas when my brother was about 12 years old, my youngest brother, and I was about, uh, well, no, he's probably younger than that. He's probably about 10 years old. And I was 16 years old. My cousin and I built his bike. He got a bicycle for Christmas. And the way we did Christmas at, at, at our house is we opened some little gifts on Christmas Eve and then our, our Christmas present would, would be there waiting for us on Christmas morning when we woke up. And so on Christmas Eve night, my cousin and I put his bicycle together. And somewhere in the mechanics of all that, we, we forgot to tighten the handlebars. And so on Christmas morning, in his new clothes, my brother decided to jump off a curb on his bike and ran over his face because he flipped right over the front of the bike. And every time we get together, we tell that story. Now, the weird part is, is not only have we lived those stories, we have told them and retold them and listened to them again and again and again. And yet never does anyone say, wait, 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 stop. I've already heard that one. No one ever does that. Because we listened, we love them. We could hear them over and over and over again. And depending on who tells it, sometimes they actually get better and better and more. Some pastors are like that. You know, they never told a story that God couldn't do. <laughs> Not sure that he actually did it. But, I mean, stories get better the more we retell the stories. I, I think one of the tragedies in, in modern faith, and, and maybe, maybe it's more in American Christianity, is that we have often viewed the Bible only as some sort of contract or piece of legislation. And we've lost sight of the fact that the Bible is largely about story. It largely is a story. It is a story of God and His creation that He loves. It's a story of betrayal and rebellion. A story of pursuit and redemption and breathtaking, sacrificial love. It's a story, ultimately, of victory. When we talk about the Bible, a, a big chunk of the Bible is what we call narrative, story. And we come to embrace this story that God is, that God's a part of, and that God continues to write in the lives of each of us. And so it should come as no surprise to us that one of the primary ways that Jesus taught when he was on this earth, was through stories. We call them parables. Often Jesus taught people about the kingdom of heaven by telling stories, parables. Now, parables are very interesting 
because they have this sort of paradoxical purpose. In, in other words, parables would both conceal and reveal. To hearts that were hungry and open and receptive, they revealed truth. But to hearts that were cold and hardened, they concealed truth. It's very interesting when you study the parables that Jesus told and why he told them. Well, we're beginning, and I get the privilege of kicking it off this weekend, a four-week series on our, on our weekends that we've just called Story Time. And we're going to look at four, uh, technically five different stories Jesus told, parables that Jesus told, and what they revealed to us about God and the character of God and the nature of God. And actually tonight, the reason we're doing five is because tonight we're going to talk about two, but they're very short stories. In fact, the two stories Jesus told that we're going to look at tonight take up only three verses of the Bible. Matthew chapter 13, if you have your Bible and you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Listen to these two very simple stories that Jesus tells. And I want you, as you listen to it, think about what is he, what's he talking about? What's the point that Jesus is trying to make here? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. That's story number one. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. That's it. Two stories that are saying basically the same thing. One of them is about a treasure that's hidden in a field. Now, that's not just random. When Jesus tells the story, the people of that culture would understand a treasure being buried in a field. That's, that's a little different for us. But in those days, you didn't pull your camel up to the ATM and deposit your paycheck into a bank. What you, what you did often when you had treasures is you would find a place in a field, hopefully your field, and you would bury it in the ground and you would put some sort of marking that, that maybe only you would recognize so that you could remember where it was. Because in that day, there, there were lots of wars and days preceding that there were wars all the time. And part of war was that the enemy would come in and they would plunder the homes of, of the people they were attacking and they would steal everything. And so people got into the habit of going somewhere in a field, finding a place, digging a hole, burying it and hiding it so only they could find it. So this idea of a treasure that would be buried in a field was pretty common to the people listening to this story. The second story is about a pearl, and it's actually about this merchant, and that, that word would, real, would in our culture refer to a wholesaler. So it's somebody who's, who, who's made a living by finding pearls, purchasing them, and then selling them to retailers who will turn around and sell them. All right? And pearls in that day were like the diamonds of our day. Okay, and so we all we all understand, you know, the value of diamonds in our culture, at least not to all women, I suppose. But I heard a, a comedian recently who talked about a jeweler's uh, pitch was was diamonds take her breath away. And he said, why don't they just come out and say it? Diamonds, that'll shut her up. <laughs> that was, you know, I said, I think it was kind of rude. But anyway. Diamond, diamonds are those, in our culture, those are the things of value, right? I mean, when we think about precious stones and gems, we think of diamonds. In, in Jesus' day, it, w it was a pearl. 
Pearls were the most valuable gem in that day. If you had pearls in that day, you had fortune. You were wealthy. In fact, pearls were so valuable that Egyptians actually worshipped the pearl. All right? Um, when women wanted to show off their wealth, when they wanted to show off how wealthy they were, they would actually put pearls on their head. They would put pearls in their hair. Um, in fact, it was said that Cleopatra had two pearls, each of them worth a half a million dollars in that day. So you can imagine, I mean, she could have been the gates of heaven right there. Those two, just two pearls of, of value. In fact, I read that Roman emperors, when they really wanted to show off how wealthy they were, one of the things they would do is they would, they would uh, dissolve pearls in vinegar and then drink it with their wine just so they could show how rich they were, that they could actually dissolve a pearl and drink it. So, so here's the story. We've got a hidden treasure that's buried in a field, and we've got this pearl among all pearls. Someone who has an eye for pearls, whose job depends on finding good pearls, has found a pearl that he has never seen anything else that comes close to it. So here's some observations if you're taking notes. Jot this down on your bulletin. One of the things we see here is we see an incomparable value. Both of these stories paint a picture to us of something that is of incomparable value. Jesus is speaking. That's the initial point of the story about something that has incomparable value. Let me just ask you a question. What is it you value most in your life? What is it that has the most value in your life. I see people in, in our world, in our culture, who value all sorts of different things. Tomorrow, at the 1130 service, there'll be a lot of bikers here, and probably there will be a few for whom the most valuable thing in their life is that motorcycle. What is it that you value? I heard a country song recently that, that talks about, actually I heard it a while ago, I think it's a few years old, but it talks about how this guy loves to fish. But his wife has had it with him going out fishing every day, all day. And she finally, and it's this beautiful, kind of melodic, love song kind of tune. And finally she says, if you walk out that door one more time, I'm leaving. And then the music builds into the chorus where Brad Paisley goes, I'm going to miss her when I get home. It's a song about value, what he values. She's walking out the door. He's going to miss her because, oh, I got another bite. It, it's a song about value. What is it in your life that you value most? We, I see people who value hobbies or money or toys or cars, careers, houses, their youth, their image. Whatever it may be, the list could be long. But what Jesus is saying to them and to us today is this. What he's talking about, this kingdom of heaven... There is nothing that you have that even comes close to the value of this kingdom of heaven. And we've talked in, in our Wednesday nights before we let out for the summer about the fact that the kingdom of heaven really is about God's space. It's about where God dwells. It's the loving rule and care of God. And in Jesus... The dwelling of God came to the dwelling of man in the person of Jesus. So the essence of this kingdom that Jesus is talking about is Jesus himself. Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus. And we see what God looks like. When you want to know what God acts like, we look at Jesus. 
And that's how God acts, because Jesus is that full expression of who God is. And Jesus says, there's nothing you have that compares to the value of him and and this kingdom. In fact, he goes further than that. He says, the cumulative value of everything you have doesn't even come close to this kingdom of heaven, this loving rule and reign of Jesus in your life. He is the priceless God. That's kind of the heart of what we're talking about today. He is the priceless God. Now, Paul understood this. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says this, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, listen to his words, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, And then he goes even further. He says, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. In other words, Paul says, all of my accomplishments, all my trophies, all my ribbons, all my diplomas and degrees, all of my promotions, all of my knowledge, all of my talent, everything I am, everything I have, compared to knowing Jesus is really nothing. And then he says, no, Nothing is too neutral. To make a fair comparison, I have to say, I consider all that rubbish. That word is refuse. In fact, translations have actually cleaned up that word. If I were to say what I really believe the correlation in our language would relate to the word, if I were to say that word, I won't, because many would be offended by it. And I think that that's Paul's intent. Because compared to this surpassing, compared to this hidden treasure, this pearl of great price, to know Jesus and to have his rule and reign in your life, everything, the greatest comparison is everything in my life is just refuse. It's rubbish. That's how Paul understood that. So, in light of this priceless God and this incomparable value, the second thing we see is an all-in proposition. Jesus talks about something of incomparable value, and then he says this thing, this kingdom, is an all-in proposition. Both stories talk about a man who sold everything he had in order to gain the prize, the hidden treasure, or the pearl. Sold everything. I love this quote. It's not on the screen, but listen to it. It's from a New Testament theologian named N.T. Wright. Here's what he says. He says, the gospel of the kingdom isn't a pleasant religious idea that you might like to explore sometime when you've got an hour or two to spare. It isn't like an attractive object in a museum that you might visit and look at admiringly the next time you're in the district. No, it's like a fabulous hoard of treasure, yours for the taking, if you'll sell everything else to buy the field where it's hidden. It's like the biggest, finest, purest pearl That any jeweler has ever imagined and it's yours for the taking if you'll sell everything else, including all the other pearls you've ever owned, in order to purchase it. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. It's an all-in proposition. See, Jesus was not offering a more religious life to people. He's not proposing that we add some new thoughts to our philosophy on life. He's not talking about adjusting some behaviors to make us better people. 
Jesus is proposing a treasure that is beyond imagination, that costs everything, but is completely worth it. It's an all-in proposition. Again, I think of Paul, who says to live is Christ, to die is gain. Here is a guy who spent years in chains. If you read just a little part of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you get a feeling for the life that Paul lived. And he'll tell you in that letter that he wrote to that church that he was in danger wherever he went, that he was beaten, that he was stoned, that he was shipwrecked, that he was stressed out, that he was opposed on every side. And all of it was for the sake of knowing Jesus and living in obedience to him. It was because he was all in. I've been thinking about that all week. And to be honest, it's really messed with me because what what it's challenged me to think about is, what am I truly all in for? What would other people who know me well, what would they say, yet Rob, he's all in for that? Would it be knowing Jesus and living out his kingdom? What would people say about you that know you well, that you're all in for? That guy, that gal, she's all in for this. Because Jesus says there's only one way to live in this kingdom. It's an all-in proposition. And here's what I've wrestled with. I would suggest to you that the problem with Christianity in America today is that too many of us are just not all in. We haven't sold it all to buy the field. And I don't say that in a rebuking way. I say that in a convicting way in my own life and share that with you. I think what we present to the world and what causes those who don't follow Jesus to be turned away is not the message of Jesus. It's that we're not really all in. That we haven't really turned from all that stuff and said, I'm all in for the kingdom for His rule and His care and His reign over my life. I mean, I think in our culture, sometimes it's, I'm all in until it costs me something. And then I'll reevaluate. Or I'm in until it inconveniences me. Or as long as it works for me. That's popular in our culture because what we want to believe is whatever works best for us. And as long as this thing works best for me, then I'm in. As long as things work out the way I think they should and God meets all my expectations, as long as it doesn't require me to change anything, then I'm in. And, and so as I was just pouring over this passage of Scripture and praying, and, and then last weekend I came into Saturday night service in this auditorium, in the live auditorium, And one of the songs that we sang was an old hymn that was written by Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross. That song says, the opening line, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. That's how it begins. So when I survey the cross, when I see it, when I take it in, the last line of the last verse says this. Listen to this word. These words, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I've said before, and I've always felt, if we would believe half of the words that we sing every weekend, we would be different people. If I would really believe that. 
when I survey, when I take in, when I become absolutely captivated and overwhelmed at this Jesus and what He's done and the love that He's shown me, then there would be no other appropriate response from me than to say, my soul, my life, my all. I'm all in. All for you. It's the only appropriate response to truly viewing the pearl, to truly seeing the treasure, is to say, I'll sell all of that if I can gain that. Maybe in America there are too many who have bought into a Christian religion but have yet to gaze upon the treasure. They have yet to truly see the pearl. Pastor Derry's been talking over the last few weekends about, about this planting this site, this venue in, in the southern part of northern Colorado, Loveland, Windsor, and those, those areas. There's only one reason we would do that, really. One primary reason. And that is so that somehow we could lift up this treasure so that people could gaze on Jesus. And when they gaze upon Him, their response too would be, I'm all in. I'm all in. Finally, I need to wrap this up. Finally, we see a joy-filled decision. A joy-filled decision. It says of the one with the hidden treasure, in his joy, he went and sold all he had. With joy, he was all in. Why is that? Why was it with joy? Well, let me, let me illustrate it this way. Let's use story in just a little different way. If story is a metaphor for life, think of story as a metaphor for our lives. Some of you here tonight are living some pretty rough stories, some pretty bad stories. For some of you, it's because others have written chapters into your story by their decisions, by their actions, by their words, and it has it's wreaked havoc on your story. For some of you, you've written some chapters yourself that you wish so bad you could take out or you could redo. Your own decisions and choices have made a mess of your story. For a lot of us, it's a little bit of both. It really doesn't matter what your story has been or how it got to be so messed up. Jesus is the one who comes to give you a new story. That's what Jesus does. He gives us a new story. Paul also understood that. Philippians 3, he says, One thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul had an old story. And Paul says, I leave that old story for the new story that God has given me. Paul's story was a very religious story. We see others in the Bible who have a very wild and irreligious story. It really doesn't matter what the story. It doesn't matter how you got that way. Jesus just comes along and says, I have a new story for your life if you'll let me write it. I can offer you a new story. If you'll just see the treasure and if you'll just be all in. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And that's why with joy, with joy they sell everything they have 
That's why they're all in. So some of you here, some of you here need a new story. There is a priceless God who made an incomprehensible sacrifice to offer you that new story. He is the God who knows everything about you and loves you anyway and offers you an unspeakable treasure in himself. But I'm here to tell you, you can't add just a little bit of him to your life. It's an all-in proposition. That's the heart of the word repentance. Repentance, you could sum it up by saying it's an all-in proposition. It's fully going away from that and turning to him. All in. And what has beat so heavy in my heart for this weekend is to invite you, some of you especially in this room, as you look at your story. Some of you, some of you, your story, you, you've given your life to Jesus, but you're still living a story that's really messed up. For you too, Jesus can change your story. Now he's going to work with you. You're going to have to let him write it. And it's probably not going to be the most comfortable thing you've ever gone through. In fact, it might be painful. Because change is always painful. But if you'll let him, Jesus will begin a whole new story in your life too. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me if you will. And we're going to pray. Before we pray, if, if you're here and you would say, I, I know for sure, both auditoriums, if you'd say, I know for sure I need a new story. Because the story I'm living right now is just so messed up. It's so broken. I need Jesus to bring into my life, first of all, the hope that there can be a new story, and then the strength to be all in, to surrender to this priceless God who loves me so much, who's able to change my story from the inside, not just address my symptoms or my behavior, but to really change my story from the inside. Your head's bowed and eyes closed. I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I think there's something healthy when we just respond to what God's doing in our heart. If you're here and you would say, include me in this prayer, I know I need a new story. Would you just raise your hand just for a moment? Thank you. Thank you. So many of you, you can put them right back down. Thank you for just being honest. You're not raising your hand to me or, or to, to this church so much. You're raising your hand to God. God who sees your heart anyway. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the overwhelming privilege it is to have you write a new story in our lives. I thank you, God, that you are the priceless God, that there is nothing in our lives or ever will be, ever could be, that compares to, to, to you and your kingdom. And I thank you for people tonight who are lifting their hand in a, in a moment of honesty and vulnerability saying, I'm all in. I'm turning from the story I've been living. For some of them, it's because they've been allowing someone else to write very painful stories. For, for many of them, it's the, story, it's the pen in their own hand and the story they've been writing with their own selfishness, their own choices. But they're turning from that. They're surrendering the pen of their life to you and inviting you to begin something brand new in them. May they receive that forgiveness and that hope by faith. Jesus, you died on a cross so that you could write a new story in our lives. 
We put our faith and our hope fully and completely in you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First time, and, and many of us, we just renew. We are all in. We lay our lives at your feet. So work your life out in us. May we live in your kingdom. May we represent this incomparable treasure that we have found in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In both auditoriums, we have prayer team members that will come. If you would like prayer, I invite you to come. Let them pray for you. Otherwise, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. God bless you as you go.